Okay, welcome back. Uh, thank you for being here. Today is uh, Thursday, June 10. And um, we took kind of a break last week uh, after completing the long series about Nityananda, 60 hours. And um, that was really um, beautiful for me personally. Um, as I said, I don't really <clears throat> have the guru-minded approach or attitude. I never really was looking for my guru. Um, I basically was uh, in dukkha no dukkha. That was the distinction. Pain or no pain. And uh, <clears throat> through high school and early college or you know, up to my low 20s, 22, 23, there was just a lot of dukkha. And I didn't feel that anybody could help me but myself, but practice. So I had a very strong faith, um, certainty in the power of sadhana, of practice, of anapanasati, of breath meditation, of Buddha Dhamma, Buddha Dharma teaching. And um, I knew from 18, actually, <clears throat> or I had the view that uh, all I needed was uh, continued deepening practice uh, and that would lead to uh, freeing from my dukkha, and it did to a large degree. Not that I'm perfect at all in any way, but <clears throat> it did break um, a, a mass of dukkha, uh, heavy karmic load in mind, uh, and suffering and uh, doubt, uh, and that was that. But, <clears throat> like I said a bit, before, um, if I, you know, to have a, a, the, the extent of my guru mm, bhakti longing feeling <clears throat> primarily goes to Nityananda. Um, and so everybody's got their own view. <clears throat> and what I'd like to start uh, as a, another series today, I don't know how far I'll take it, we'll see is a discussion <clears throat> of the life and teachings and person-beingness uh, of Nisargadat Maharaj. Nisargadat was uh, the speaker-teacher whose teachings were codified in the book uh, Tatvamasi, I Am That, uh, I believe from a student, Maurice Friedman, who actually act, was um, a foreigner, who spoke Marathi, who could actually speak the southern Indian language that Nisargadat himself spoke to his uh, local devotees and uh, disciples. And so, Tatvamasi, Thou Art That, also translated as, uh, you know, the three words, Tatvamasi. Tat is the same as Tathagata Tat. Tathagata Tat is translated in Buddhism as suchness, as it isness. Tathagata is the that the thus come one the such come one, and tatag uh, tata tatata tatata actually is a Sanskrit word that that is commonly translated as suchness as it isness, and so uh, uh, you can say tat vam vam is uh, um, I or personhood vam. Uh, so Tatvamasi, as far as I know, could also be translated as uh, I is such, or such 
uh, is such is I, such is you, you are such, you are such, I is such, such is I. Of course, the I is not a personal I, it's uh, the nature, it's true nature, the, the true nature of what we conceive of as identity, the basis of subjectivity. And so the basis of subjectivity is what I is, and what I is, is tat, which is sat, of course. The truth, sat chit, sat chit ananda sat, truth, absolute reality, is that different than, than tat, tat? So tat and sat, some difference, difference or same? <clears throat> and again, you know, this is the planet of uh, the paucity of honesty. This is the planet of 3D repeaters. This is the planet where uh, we are seriously veiled, not only veiled, but under continual attack by negative, negative forces, liars uh, and knaves and fools. It, it's, you know, in the intellectual sphere, right? <laughs> there are... Um, you know, uh, British Museum uh, uh, archaeologists who were hiding things 150 years ago. <laughs> there were arguments between uh, science. I mean, they they threw Newton into jail, or they killed him, or something. You know, Copernicus and all these guys, the scientists, were initially hated by the church and persecuted or killed, and so. The church as persecution of of science, and then science as uh, very political too, and medical now too. So, you know, this is a planet that's uh, really uh, shaking my head. So, there's uh, self-deception all over the place, and uh, well-meaning um, uh, suppression, oppression, dishonesty all over the place. Um uh, once you start to talk to people about what they think. And then the more educated, uh, the more brainwashed. And it's always been that way. And honesty, you know, uh, the basis of the educational systems is not teaching morality. In the Christian or in some of the religious systems, they're teaching morality. But it's the morality, uh, particularly of honesty, um, that keeps uh, the followers in the fold, in the tent in the community. What if honesty leads me to realize that my teachers are a liar or there was some problem in the doctrine? Well, then you got to get thrown out. <laughs> the, 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 the group doesn't want the morality of the honesty of uh, calling out its own sins or flaws or deficiencies or shortcomings or where other traditions have it right and they have it wrong or they have nothing to say. Groups don't want that. So that's dishonesty. That's immorality. So, you got to find it yourself. So, then, in the world of gurus and guru seekers, which I don't know so much of, I mean, my background really is, um, you know, Buddhist, Taoist, more than it is um, Hindu, Advaita Vedanta. <clears throat> Though I have the utmost respect for Nityananda, and I think he's the real deal of what a finished being looks like. That doesn't come from years of looking for a guru or um, the feeling that I need a guru. Obviously, I'm not finished. (laughs) No doubt. But um, uh, I trust I trust uh, Atman to uh, help help me help take me home and uh, kick my ass when needed and give guidance and inspiration when needed. 
and um, uh, I, you know, I keep my eyes on the goal. So I, I think that that'll be fine. But when I now start to look into the writings about Mishkar Gadot and uh, David Godman's um, page that I'd like to draw from, from davidgodman.org, uh, uh, 10 pages on remembering Nisargadat Maharaj. Uh, some people will say he was a total avadut. Some people have problems with him. Same with Nichinanda. <laughs> you know, some people think he's nothing. They think he's just a magic worker or he's just a dirty sadhu from the South. I mean, really, people have all sorts of views. Well-educated people. Uh, two people totally well-educated. One person thinks he's a nothing. The other person thinks that, you know, he's uh, Paramatman in, in form, in physical body. All right, so you got to figure it out yourself. <clears throat> and you can't depend on other people. You really cannot. They can't depend on their mind. Their mind is fickle. Our mind is fickle. And so we, sh- we can't depend on other people. One person says he's great. The other one says he's nothing. Same thing with Nisargadat. And, and how can I say that Nisargadat is finished when I'm not finished? How can anybody say? How can I say Nityananda's finished or Paramatman when I'm not there? I don't know. Ultimately, I don't know. But there is, you know, value to follow, to being true to oneself when I'm right and when I'm wrong and yet being very open and longing to be corrected or found truth. But a lot of people doing a lot of correcting are themselves not clearly correct. <laughs> so... Then you get back to Jiangsu, who says, well, you know, <laughs> knowledge knowledge depends on some understanding of how to apply it and how it relates, but there's not certain, no certainty about that, about when certainty will come. There's no certainty regarding achieving certainty, regarding what is true and, what, and how to apply it. <laughs> so you need a Zhenren, they say. So then you go to the Guru. But then, you know, we can't understand them fully, because they're beyond us, presumably. Meanwhile, they got their stuff. And so what you see with Nisargadat, he's got a certain thing going on. <clears throat> I mean, he, I believe, ate meat. I believe he smoked. Uh, somebody said he liked sex, but I don't think that's so. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about a lot of people. <laughs> so a lot of people have a lot of disagreements about a lot of things. And, um, you know... Many, many times the right answer is, okay, you say so. Mm, okay, you say so. You say so. Cool. Let me look into it. Um, but i got to figure out what I say uh, before I can correct myself. <laughs> Not that... i got to know what I think before I can know how to adjust it in light of greater truth or as I keep seeking and finding truth. So, so all of that is... <clears throat> a preface to uh, this section, reading this Argadat Maharaj, particularly starting with David Godman's, um, and he's a very decent fellow, born in '53 in the UK, very sincere seeker, did a lot of great, a lot of good for a lot of people by bringing particularly teachings of Ramana Maharshi to the world. That was his main work: is uh, bringing core teachings of Ramana Maharshi in a book, I think, called Day by Day, um, to the world, in the way that Tatva Masi, I think from Maurice Friedman, brought Nisargadat's teachings and life to the world, to the Western world. Right, Putting these books out in English uh, exposes these teachings to millions of people 
<clears throat> and is a major service. So David Godman did a major service bringing Ramana Maharshi's teachings, and Maurice Friedman did a major service to the world bringing Sargadat's teachings to the world. Um, interestingly, Nityananda is nowhere near the same level of visibility. Not at all. Uh, you may <laughs> figure that out for yourself as to why that is. So, <clears throat> but but looking into, I mean, there are many interesting anecdotes about Nisargadatta. Uh, is this the way that every enlightened person looks? No. Um, what what uh, what is the value of looking at his life? Well, surely he's highly evolved, if not finished. I don't know, but he has a lot to say about a lot of matters that relate to our process along the path or in development, and. You also see his character, which is not to be emulated, meaning he was a rough fellow, Nisargadat, um, and he liked arguing, and he liked shouting, and he, you know, he, I think he died of cancer, and he was a chain smoker, and some story is that his wife was really rough on him before she died, and somewhere it said, somebody asked him, why don't you marry again after she died? He said, at, at her death, I married freedom. <laughs> so his wife was a real... Um, you know, Haridan, and um, gave him a real hard time. So why is that? Well, you can say it's just, you know, the inexplicable working of all that is non-dual, that has, you know, where you can't talk about purpose or time or even karma. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, there is something called karma <laughs> in the past lives. And so in one level, uh, in one instance, he was known to refute, to, to say there's no past lives. Yet in another case, he's talking about the past lives of some some other people. So what's that about? I don't know. You got to figure it out yourself. And and even whatever we figure out or uh, whatever ideas we have should be known to be provisional, temporary, or uh, provisional at the current time. My current view is this: subject to change as I learn more. This is very important, and so. I wouldn't fault him for blasting people. Um, but the Advaita Vedanta perspective, which is very much, you know, non-dual, about non-duality, um, has a problem, it seems, with some of the traditional Vedantic concepts that they see as dualistic. Dualistic, yeah, sure, relative truth. Time and space. Past, present, future. Greater, lesser. You know, multiplicity and um, uh, differentiation. Um, yeah, time and space is illusory. Yeah, all is one, all is light. Yeah, reality is sat and tat and beyond is is the source of differentiation, not the nature, not, not within the realm of differentiation. Okay. Um, but on the one hand, he's talking about no past lives. On the other hand, he's talking about past lives. On the one hand, he's a very good guy, Nisargadat. I mean, <clears throat> you know, first of all, let no one claim that I claim anything about myself. And because he was very hard on people who claim to be enlightened teaching in the West, claiming to lead, to be able to lead others to enlightenment. I am not doing that. So don't think that I am. I am not finished and never claim to be and never claim to be guiding anyone to be finished. I'm simply sharing what I've learned <clears throat> and what I see as helpful. Uh, just like Gautama did. I mean, he was finished, but uh, 
you know, uh, aspects, uh, principles of the way. Not, I'm finished with the way. And I'll tell you that from my, uh, you know, status of finished or enlightened. But there are a lot of people in the divide of Adanta community, it seems, who think they're finished. And then they end up mm, approaching issues of relative truth from an absolute perspective that seems to be negatory or negating, where he would say, hey, there isn't that, isn't real, nothing, 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 nothing. I think, and, you know, there's a problem with that. <laughs> Majamaka, uh, Nagarjuna, famous, famous, most important Buddhist um, logician, philosopher, um, thinker um, in the early Mahayana, talking about, you know, reality or sat or tat, beyond affirmation negation, of course, non-dual, of course. But <clears throat> um, negation and affirmation are both uh, maya. Um, and Gautama, you know, saying cosmology and karma are uh, inconceivable. Okay, it's inconceivable. But within this realm of illusion, yeah, there are apparently principles guiding the processes of uh, phenomena in the illusion called karma and reincarnation and seven chakras and right action versus wrong action. So, but this is just my view. You've got to figure it out yourself. You know, I have no claim for my own attainment of anything. I need somebody higher than me to tell me, you know, where I'm at, as I think all of us would. So what I see reading Nisargadat is, is not, to me, the same uh, majesty as Nityananda. And um, Nisargadat talked a lot, and, this, and Nityananda didn't. And so, yes, I have a bias. Is my bias uh, coming from objective reality that I know Nityananda is Paramatman and Nisargadat is not, not as high? Somebody will say, how dare you even think such a thing? How can you even imagine that you're qualified to say such a thing to compare Gautama or Nityananda to Nisargadat or Ramana Maharshi? <clears throat> well, should, why, should I just shut my head? You know, should I just beat myself down into silence? Is that better? What should I do? What should you do? Should I not talk? Should you not talk? <laughs> if I can't talk, should you not talk? Or you're better than me so you can talk but I can't talk? You know, it gets into weird stuff. So knowing I don't know, knowing we know little, yet knowing I think that it's valuable to, to, to air our wonderings. <clears throat> um, I have some wonderings about, you know, Nisargadat, and I have some wonderings about certain deficiencies in the Advaita Vedanta communities, which seem to avoid certain topics, or or kind of uh, brush them away in a, a certain non-dualizing um, avoidance, non-dualizing dismissal, dismissal by non-dual by by recourse to non-duality. Air <laughs> is sins of Advaita. <laughs> sins of the non-dual. <clears throat> um, and and that's um, was addressed in Buddhism too, by the way, um, where you go to the teacher in the Zen tradition, Chan, and you say, there is nothing, all is one, there is nothing. They'll slam you, they'll slap you, they'll kick you out because you're attached to views of Sat and Tat. You know, Sat and Tat, as it is in a suchness, absolute reality, truth, Sat, Tat, Absolute, you know, suchness as it isness. Tat, famasi, what you are. I is this tat. 
tathata, or sat, truth, reality, which is suchness, emptiness, as it isness, indescribable. Um, should I not talk? Some people will say, yeah, shut the fuck up and don't talk. <laughs> Other people say, what? I, I say, should I, why shouldn't I talk? I want you to talk. I mean, maybe I can't listen for five hours, but why not? Let's get it out, because uh, we need to um, spit out our confusion, our wonderings, our doubt. I think it's useful. And for people who think it's not useful, you shouldn't be here. You know, you should go suppress yourself <laughs> or go to someone who says, shut up, or I know the truth, and you just follow along. So for me, <clears throat> I remember I met Sung Sang Sanim, the teacher of uh, Korean Zen in Rhode Island at his home base when he was still alive in the early 80s. And he's very, he was like, his basic teaching was very Korean, very like Korean Zen, which is just do it or just don't think. Or first thought, best thought. Um, very rough. <laughs> and at one point in some small group meeting after some meditation period or during a retreat, he's talking about thought. And I actually boldly said, I like thinking. <laughs> and he looked at me like, what? <laughs> you like, th first of all, he's like, you disagree with me? Then he's, you like thought? What's wrong with you? And it's not that I, I like neurotic thought, but... You know, we are human beings, you know, right? Right? Human beings, mana, man, manasic, man, the mantle functioning. So they didn't, he didn't like that I liked thought. But liking thought doesn't mean I like monkey mind. I love equanimity. I love formlessness. But we, we are not perfected. And so mind has lots of blockage and, and ignorance and dark spots or, or shadowing and blackout which can be helped into clarity illumination by freely speaking and talking with each other and listening and dialogue and contemplation. And he was the kind of guy who just said, you know, just do it. First thought, best thought, no thought, just do. And okay, and some people love him dearly and think he's the greatest, he's the cat's meow and he's the supreme teacher for all. Fine, you do you and I'll do me. <clears throat> and so don't eat what's on my plate and I won't eat what's on yours. You leave me to my way. I'll leave you to yours. And if we can learn from each other, that's great. And if we can't, that's actually great too because we don't want trouble. I don't want trouble. <laughs> I, and if you want trouble, that's fine. But take it elsewhere uh, to somebody else who wants trouble. So what I mean is as we get into this writing up of Nisargadat Maharaj, this is, for me personally, not the same level of majesty as reading Nityananda. Uh, it might be more useful for some people than Nityananda. But, and it's useful for me. Um, but we're getting, I think, at a, a, a more human level here. And <clears throat> who the fuck cares what I think? If you like it, great. If you don't, don't. You know? Um... And so what I mean is we really got to figure it out because there's no, <laughs> there's no certified authority um, even though I think there are certified authorities like Nityananda Gautama. And then there are all sorts of other teachers that have a lot of important things to say. To me, personally, Nityananda and Gautama are in a class by themselves. And there are others, I just don't know them. But that's all. Of, all, of who I know, I see that 
I see it that way that they are in the class by themselves. Very much like eighth density. And and very the human the, the human personal personalistic qualities are gone. I don't see that with Nisargadat. I see strong personal qualities. The human is still there. Okay. So let me jump in. This is um <clears throat> ten pages. <laughs> let me see if we have any time left. All right, twenty four twenty four. Uh, this is um, from David Godman's site, uh, 10 pages <laughs> of his recollections of Nisargadatta. And I just want to read it through and try to restrain myself uh, kindly from extended commentary. But it's a very interesting write-up. This is um, advanced presentation. David Godman is a serious seeker, student, compiler... Uh, you know, world server bringing core Advaita Vedanta teachings, Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadat, and and some others to the West for the benefit of tens of thousands. That's a great thing, I think. <clears throat> and um, he, at some point, recognized that he hadn't written much on Nisargadat, and you'll see why. And and the background story is here. So this is him. Uh, speaking to somebody named Harriet, who was a friend of his or an interviewer. And I'll just read it through. It's ten pages. It'll take us a few weeks or months, maybe, a few weeks. And uh, hopefully I can do well with this for you. Um, For your edification, um, as another um, star in the constellation of important teachers... Um, see what you think, and um, we can talk about it along the way, too. So, <clears throat> from David Godman's page, Remembering Nisargadat Maharaj, top preface starts, I was sitting with a visitor in 2002, looking at a new book on Nisargadat Maharaj that consisted of photos and brief quotes. I knew some of the people in the pictures, and narrated a few stories about them. This prompted a wider and lengthy discussion on some of the events that went on in Maharaj's presence. So, when he says Maharaj, he means means Nisargadat. When he says Bhagawan, he means Maharishi. So, discussion of some of the events that went on in Maharaj's presence. After she left, meaning the person he was talking to, I felt prompted, I guess she is Harriet, I prompted to write down some of the things I had remembered since I had never bothered to record any of my memories of Maharaj Nisargadat before. I went about recording the conversations. A few other memories surfaced, things that I hadn't thought about for years. This, therefore, is a record of a pleasant afternoon's talk supplemented by recollections of related incidents that somehow never came up. And so it starts with, <clears throat> the woman talking to him, Harriet, she said, Every book I have seen about Maharaj, Sargadat, and I think I've looked at most of them, is a record of his teachings. Did no one ever bother to record the things that were going on around him? Ramakrishna had the Gospel of Ramakrishna, a book. Ramana Maharshi had Day by Day, a book and a whole library of books by devotees that all talk about the life with their guru. 
why hasn't Maharaj spawned a similar genre? And so David <clears throat> Godman, David replies, Maharaj very rarely spoke about his life, and he didn't encourage questions about it. I think he saw himself as a kind of doctor who diagnosed and treated the perceived spiritual ailments of the people who came to him for advice. His medicine was his presence and his powerful words. Uh, by the way, presence is his shakti, his uh, energy field, uh, the intelligent energy, <laughs> and seven chakra unified energy radiance of what he is, and his powerful words. Anecdotes from his past were not part of the prescription, nor did he seem interested in telling stories about anything or anyone else. Harriet replies, You said rarely spoke. That means that you must have heard at least a few stories. What did you hear him talk about? What did you hear him talk about? Meaning, what stories did he tell of his relations with other people or his prior life or personal, personal process? <laughs> David replies with a longer answer, mostly about his guru, uh, Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj. Siddha Rameshwar was the guru of Nisargadatta and the effect he had had on his life. I think his love for his guru and his gratitude to him were always present with him. Nisargadatta Maharaj used to do five bhajans a day ritual simply because his guru had asked him to. Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj had passed away in 1936, but Nisargadatta Maharaj was still continuing with these practices more than 40 years later. And a lot of these contacts were in the 70s between... Um, David Godman and other Western students with Nisargadat in Bombay. There's a picture of Nisargadat and uh, Western devotees that includes a picture of Jack Cornfield. <laughs> There's Jack Cornfield and some of the leading Vipassana uh, Theravada Western teachers uh, today. Some of the leading inside meditation community teachers like Jack Cornfield. I don't know if it's Cornfield. Uh, were direct students, or at least they attended um, darshan or, or you know satsang with Nisargadat, and so you see them in the picture in the mid seventies, um, beaming, <laughs> very happy. So David Godman goes on. I once heard him say, Nisargadat saying, "My guru asked me to do these five bhajans daily, and he never cancelled his instructions before he passed away. I don't need to do them anymore, but I will carry on doing them until the day I die." because this is the command of my guru. I continue to obey his instructions, even though I know these bhajans are pointless, because of the respect and gratitude I feel towards him. Pointless for him. <laughs> that doesn't mean pointless for someone who's not completed, if he's completed. On the other hand, um, you know, breaking one of the three first fetters, the first three fetters, one of them in Buddhism at Sotapanna broken is attachment to rites and rituals. And that may be why he's saying they're pointless. Um, are they pointless for everyone? Are they pointless for you if you think they're pointless? Am I right? Are you right? <laughs> Who knows? So, but he said they're pointless. That's interesting. But that doesn't mean every... <laughs> that means he might prescribe it for somebody and say they're critical for you. They're pointless for me, but you need them. Meanwhile, another teacher would not prescribe them at all, like Nityananda didn't. Okay, so you see, different teachers, different teachings, different karmic stream... Different levels of evolution, yes. Higher, lower, who the heck knows? But different teachers give different teachings, 
And can we really say one is higher or other? Well, I'd say yes and no. <laughs> we c if we if we were at the level of six density, we would see clearly who's who and where's where, who's who's who where, who's where. Uh, absolutely, that can be known, and absolutely, there is a, a linear sequence in the world of form. <laughs> Beyond that, no, you know, meaning the community of Atman. Are they all the same or are they different? Well, there's something that's the same and there's something that's different. Both. Are they same or different? Both. <laughs> same and different. Is their attainment the same or different? Both. Same and different. How? Well, the lineage, the, the legacy, the, the line of uh, soul evolution in time and space, illusory time and space progression, was different and unique for each being. How they got to where they are was unique. Uh, where they are may be same when they're at the same level. But just because they're saying certain things don't mean they're at the same level. But you have to be at a higher level in the world of levels um, or beyond all levels to assess their levels. You have to be beyond all uh, dimensional progression. You have to be beyond light to perfectly know light. That's the simple point. You have to be dwelling with the source of light to perfectly assess gradations and qualities of light. I am not finished with light, so I cannot perfectly assess gradations and qualities of light. Ba-boom. And if they are finished, uh, they could. But I'm not, so I can't assess. I can guess, <laughs> or I can imagine. But at one level... Uh, while I think metaphysically, in absolute terms, yeah, there is relative development of light, meaning consciousness and seven chakras of beings in the octave. Some are higher, some are lower. Yeah. Still, in terms of a teacher, you got to go where it feels right. Uh, he's the best teacher for you. But that doesn't mean he's the best teacher for me. And he's the best teacher for you doesn't mean he's the best teacher for all. And that doesn't mean he's the highest teacher. But actually, we can't determine who's the highest. We're not finished with light. If you're finished with light, you have a perfect mastery of discerning light. If you don't have a perfect mastery of discerning light, you really can't say who's higher than who. I can't. <laughs> Do you think you can? Don't think you can. Don't, don't inflate. <laughs> you know? So, um, he said... The Vajans are pointless. For him, okay. I wouldn't say that's wrong, but I wouldn't say that that means it's pointless for you or me. But that doesn't mean that it is to be done. And if you go to a different teacher, he'll tell you something else. If you go to the Sargadat, he might say, you must do five Vajans a day. If you go to Nityanda, he might not say anything about it. Hmm. What does that mean? It means that... Uh, that that seekers are attracted and seekers end up um, with the teachers and teachings that they seem to need or be ready for at any one time on the path. And uh, they may include heavy distortion. I mean, along the way, we find confusion <laughs> in, in what we read and study and learn and then go beyond it. And so everything's perfect in that way. Um, and while there really is, I think, 
frankly, high and low in the realm of the octave. You know, the, the problem, the sin of Advaita Vedanta, at least spoken by some people, is sort of um, a blanket rejection of relative truth or an underappreciation of relative truth in some cases. While they imagine that they're living in non-duality and finish with the path and there's no path and there's no enlightenment and da 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 no, 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 no. Uh, there's certain things they're missing <laughs> by that. Anyway, I hope you understand what I mean. This is a rambling type of presentation today. So he said, I know the bhajans are pointless, but he, because of the respect and gratitude I feel towards him, he loves his teacher. Harriet replies and says to David, did he ever talk about the time he was with Siddha Rameshwar about what passed between them? Uh, David says, not on any of the visits I made. Ranjit Maharaj once came to visit during one of his morning ses sessions. Um, Ranjit Maharaj was another disciple of um, Nisarga Dat's guru. And so... I don't know all these names, and I'm sure I'm not respectful in the way you some people might want me to be. Okay. Um, Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj, called Maharaj, also Godman calls Nisargadat Maharaj, these are honorifics. One of the other students of Maharaj, of, of Nisargadat's teacher, Siddha Rameshwar, was this Ranjit Maharaj. So Ram, Ranjit Maharaj once came to visit during one of the morning sessions. They chatted in Marathi for a few minutes, and then Ranjit left. Maharaj, meaning Nisargadat, simply said, That man is a yani. He's a disciple of my guru, but he's not teaching. <laughs> meaning, he's like uh, Prateka Buddha. He just uh, goes his own way without a public, uh, big public face. And he goes on, David says, End of story. That visit could have been a springboard to any number of stories about his guru or about Ranjit, but he, Nisargadat, wasn't interested in talking about them. He just got on with answering the questions of his visitors. Harriet goes on. What else did you glean about his background and the spiritual tradition he came from? <clears throat> this is an interesting background that's not commonly explained by somebody who was on the inside. David says, <clears throat> He was part of a spiritual lineage that's known as the Nav-Nat Sampradaya. Nav-Nat Sampradaya. Nat is a certain type of uh, yogi. This wasn't a secret, because he had photos or pictures of many of the teachers from his lineage on his walls. He did a Guru Puja every morning, at the end of which he put kumkum on, as I think the uh, sandalwood paste, kumkum on the foreheads of all the teachers in his lineage, and on the photos of everyone else he thought was enlightened. I should mention that his walls were covered with portraits. Ramana Maharshi was there, and so were many other famous saints who were not part of his lineage. Mixed in with them were other pictures, such as one as Sivaji, Shivaji, a famous Marathi warrior from a few hundred years ago. <laughs> I once asked him why Shivaji had made it onto his walls, and he said, quote, My son wants me to keep it there. He was married. It's the logo on our brand of beadies handmade cigarettes, his tobacco. He was a beady sales uh, owner of shops, among other works. He thinks that if it's mixed in with all the other pictures that I do puja to, sales will increase. 
<laughs> so he was very kind to his son. <clears throat> uh, Harriet says, what did he say about all these photos of the people from his lineage? Did he never explain who they were? David said, never. I only found out what their names were a few years later when I came across a book by R.D. Ranad, who was in a Karnataka branch of the Sampradaya of that sect. He, or rather his organization, brought out a souvenir that contained the same photos I had seen on Maharaj's walls, along with a brief description of who they were. <clears throat> I do remember one interesting story that Maharaj told about the Sampradaya lineage. He had been answering questions in his usual way when he paused to give us a piece of history. <clears throat> and he said, this is uh, David's recollection, David Godman's recollection of Nisargadat's uh, comment. He said, I sit here every day answering your questions, but this is not the way that the teachers of my lineage used to do their work. A few hundred years ago, there were no questions and answers at all. Ours is a householder lineage, which means everyone had to go out and earn his living. There were no meetings like this where disciples met in large numbers with the guru and asked him questions. Travel was difficult. <clears throat> there were no buses, trains, and planes. In the old days, the guru did the traveling on foot, while the disciples stayed at home and looked after their families. The guru walked from village to village to meet these disciples. If he met someone he thought was ready to be included in the, in the sampradaya, he would initiate him with the mantra of the lineage. That was the only teaching given out. The disciple would repeat the mantra, and periodically the guru would come to the village to see what progress was being made. When the guru knew that he was about to pass away, he would appoint one of the householder devotees to be the new guru, and that new guru would then take on the teaching duties, walking from village to village, initiating new devotees, and supervising the progress of the old ones. <clears throat> and the big problem, of course, is if uh, you don't have a qualified successor, and that has happened in many lineages or many cases in the last few millennia. He goes on and says, I don't know why this story suddenly came out. Maybe he was just tired of answering the same questions again and again. So his approach, Nisargadat, was uh, intensively dialogic. And um, uh, the, there's a much, much teaching. Harriet says, I have heard that Maharaj occasionally gave out a mantra to people who asked, was this the same mantra? David Godman replies, yes but he wasn't a very good salesman for it. I once heard him say, <clears throat> quote, My guru has authorized me to give out this mantra to anyone who asks for it, but I don't want you to feel that it's necessary or important. It's more important to find out the source of your beingness. Nevertheless, some people would ask. He would take them downstairs and whisper it in his or her ear. It was Sanskrit, but you only got one chance to remember it. He would not write it down for you. If you didn't remember it from that one whisper, you never got another chance. Babu. And so, <clears throat> uh, right away, he uh, shoots the arrow in the bullseye and says, it's more important for you to find the source of your beingness. What is I? Who is this one here? Who is I? Who is, who is the speaker? What is this speaker? And, and that's enough, right? <laughs> And um, everything else is superfluous to that, actually. Everything is just uh, technique um, to make that discovery. Uh, 
and yet everything is critical. <laughs> in morality, like in Buddhism, right? Right action, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood. It's critical. You can't find the source of your beingness if you continue creating fresh, you know, uh, binding karma, fresh harm, <laughs> doing fresh harm daily. You will not find the source of your beingness. And so that must end. And then you've got you know all the different critical qualities like faith and bhakti, devotion, longing, and uh, sadhana practice, and dharana, the concentration, and moving to samadhi, and moving to prajna, panya, insight, wisdom, awakening, and uh, various trances and meditative states and equanimity. All that's um, on the way to final, full, full and final discovery of the source of our beingness. You know, self is a being of infinite worth, said Ra. It's all about beingness, the source of your beingness. And that's brilliant. <laughs> it's not just find your beingness. It's find the source of your beingness. And your beingness is not the same as being. Uh, the creation is filled with beingnesses, meaning beings, whatever they are, experiencing beingness is there a being experiencing beingness no actually <laughs> there is beingness experiencing beingness there is infinity experiencing beingness infinity infinite intelligent infinity right now we know the theory um but the reality is not you know the taste of sugar is not the talk of sugar so taste the sugar don't just talk good to talk but don't just talk, do the taste. But the source of beingness is the source of, um, you know, intelligent, it's intelligent infinity that gives rise to intelligent energy and gives rise to light. And uh, the being of self, self is a being of infinite worth. Uh, beingness complex, six density is Atman, is the state of beingness or being, but it's not, there's, <laughs> there's not an individual subjective agent experiencing beingness, meaning there isn't a being doing beingness. It's infinity doing beingness. Infinity does beingness in the forms of an apparent being of energy consciousness. The forms of light, seven densities, seven energy, seven chakras, seven energy fields of the seven dimensions of the mind, body, spirit, beingness, totality, complex, <clears throat> Those are the forms of apparent being, the energy sheaths of with subjective consciousness, the five skandhas, and the ultimate, you know, subjectivist vijnana is uh, the are, are the constituents of the uh, apparent experience of of, a, of being a being, of I'm a being, the identity of of being. But really, it's actually uh, a, a manifestation of beingness, the appearance of beinghood, the appearance of selfhood. The appearance of selfhood <clears throat> is not a self. <laughs> it's a shrouded manifestation of infinity. <laughs> a shrouded manifestation of infinity appears as being that experiences beingness or appearance of beingness that thinks it's a being. So beingness 
is the uh, seven-dimensional, threefold, you know, illusory identity, selfhood, subjectivity. Uh, that is a beingness that believes itself to be a being. And so the source of your beingness is brilliant. I mean, brilliant. Uh, he goes straight to Paramatman. He's going straight to source when he says that. <clears throat> the source of this temporary, illusory, mayic experience of apparent beingness. That's the, that's the goal, is to find the source. So, can't get much more uh, perfectly targeted 10.00 uh, hit the mark in terms of the final goal than that statement, the source of your beingness. It's not the source of yourself. It's the source of this illusory experience of apparent being having beingness. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he goes on, David Godman goes on, nevertheless, some people would ask, <clears throat> um, and so then, yes, he gave them, took them downstairs, whispered in the ear, and if you don't remember, you never got another chance for the mantra. Harriet replies, what other teaching instructions did Siddha Rameshwar, his teacher, give him? Was he the one who encouraged him to teach by answering questions, rather than in the more traditional way? Which is an interesting quest- point of how did he get to his approach uh, working with students of um, intensive dialogue. David says, I have no idea if he was asked to teach in a particular way. Siddha Rameshwar told him that he could teach and give out the Guru Mantra to anyone who asked for it. But he wasn't allowed to appoint a successor. <clears throat> That's very interesting. You have to remember that Nisargadatta wasn't realized himself when Siddha Rameshwar, his teacher, passed away. So, he was allowed by his guru, before the guru died, to um, give out the mantra freely to anyone who asked for it. But he wasn't allowed to appoint a successor because he wasn't at that time appointed to be the successor of his guru, Siddha Rameshwar. Which is interesting. <clears throat> so actually, Nisargadatta wasn't appointed by anybody to be a guru. He, maybe he was, actually, but maybe he was by somebody else, or maybe his guru appeared to him after his physical body passed away. That's totally possible. So Harriet says, what about personal details? Give me the skinny on this guy, she said. <clears throat> uh, did Maharaj ever talk about his childhood or his family? Ramana Maharshi often told stories about his early life, but I don't recollect reading a single biographical incident in any of Maharaj's books. David said, that's true. He just didn't seem interested in talking about his past. The only story I remember him telling was more of a joke than a story. Some man came in who seemed to have known him for many years. He talked to Maharaj in Marathi in a very free and familiar way. No translations were offered, but after about ten minutes, all the Marathi-knowing people there simultaneously broke out into laughter. After first taking Maharaj's permission, one of the translators explained, to the, to the white folks, what it was all about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, the translator says something like this. Maharaj says that when he was married, his wife used to give him a very hard time. She was always bossing him around and telling him what to do. Maharaj, do this. Maharaj, go to the market and buy that. End quote. She didn't call him Maharaj, of course, but I can't remember what she did call him. The translator continued, quote, His wife died a long time ago, when Maharaj was in his 40s. It's usual for men of this age who are widowed to marry again. 
So all Maharaj's relatives warned him, not warned him, wanted him to find, <laughs> warned him, wanted him to find another wife, but he refused, saying, the day she died, I married freedom. <clears throat> and David goes on, I find it hard to imagine anyone bossing Maharaj around, or even trying to. He was a feisty character who stood no nonsense from anyone. Harriet replies, from what I've heard, feisty may be a bit of a euphemism. Of course. <laughs> I have heard that he could be quite bad-tempered and aggressive at times. And so, likewise, um, to say the wife was bossy also is a euphemism or a soft way of putting things. And that's what I'm saying about life on earth and honesty and truth and speaking. Uh, the truth is commonly not um, plainly said because we feel there's a problem with with speaking that baldly, boldly, nakedly, with the intensity that we feel, you know, that may rightly uh, be deserved in speaking a certain point. So to say that she bossed him, you could also say maybe she really was abusive. And to say that he's feisty... Uh, <clears throat> could also be said he's bad-tempered and aggressive. <clears throat> but feisty has a positive connotation. Oh, he's kind of a feisty one. <laughs> but bad-tempered and aggressive sounds unpleasant. Which is it? Either? Both? Depends on the time? I don't know. Can we judge him from that anyway? Even if it is bad-tempered and aggressive. Does that mean he's not fully realized? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't perfectly assess light. Can you? So... Then David says, so, but I'm saying we're in the, 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 <clears throat> the vast sinkhole of a difference. No, we're in the, the, in this vast murky realm of non-understanding. Understanding is not of your density. Yeah, very much so. So even, you know, the way we frame experience and the conclusions we draw from observation, the very observations we make are distorted and biased. And then the very words we use to explain our biased, limited observations are themselves biased commonly in certain way, to exaggerate in the way of um, emphasis or de-emphasis. <clears throat> it's a real mess, frankly. Anyway, David says, yes, that's true, but meaning he could be bad-tempered and aggressive. But I just think that that's part of his teaching method. Some people need to be shaken up a bit, and shouting at them is one way of doing it. I remember one woman asking him rather innocently, I thought enlightened people were supposed to be happy and blissful. You seem to be grumpy most of the time. <laughs> Doesn't your state give you perpetual happiness and peace? Yeah, see, great. This is a critical kind of question. We ask this too. He replied, the only time a yani truly rejoices is when someone else becomes a yani. So... His only true happiness is when others uh, go into awakening. <clears throat> That's a, kind of a high state. However, you know, why not rejoice seeing the sun and the and the and the birds and the butterflies and um, the sky? Is there something wrong with rejoicing with that? No, but you know. Uh, anyway, I can find many more bases of rejoicing, but I, it seems that his karmic path was such, it, it was a rough path, it seems. Anyway, Harriet said, how often did that happen? <laughs> <clears throat> Meaning, when somebody else, when did, uh, 
how often did it happen that someone around uh, Nisargadatta indeed became a yani, meaning self-realized or one stage of awakening, although some people would think it's complete and perfect. How often did it happen, she asks, and David said, I don't know. That was another area he didn't seem to want to talk about. Yeah, it's hard. The the the, the greatest thing for, a, a, I mean, these are gurus, right? Nityananda and Nisargadatta and the Ramana Maharshi. And they are, <clears throat> their work, their life, their job description is bringing others to awakening. That's not my just job description. And so with that job description, yeah, indeed, the greatest joy is when you're fulfilling your job description <laughs> and bringing others to awakening, uh, initial or complete. And that's great, beautiful. But actually, not many do. You know, many are called and few are chosen like that. So David replies, I once asked him directly, how many people have become realized through your teachings? Boom, hard, hardcore question. He didn't seem to welcome the question. Mm-hmm. What business of that? What business is that of yours? He answered. How does knowing that information help you in any way? Good reply, but it does seem to indicate that there weren't too many. And that's not that's you know whose fault is that? I wouldn't say it's his fault at all, frankly. <laughs> Even if he's got his rough manner, which many would say too rough, I wouldn't say it's it's blame. It, it's um, <clears throat> just not common that many people get it. Well, I said, David Godman replies, depending on your answer, it might increase or decrease my level of optimism. <laughs> if there's a lottery with only one winning ticket out of 10 million, then I can't be very optimistic about winning. But if it's 100 winning tickets out of 1,000, I would feel a lot better about my chances. If you could assure me that people are waking up here, <laughs> I would feel good about my own chances. And I think feeling good about my chances would be good for my level of earnestness. And that just shows, actually, the perspective of a lot of people in these communities. Um, for me personally, it was not about winning the lottery and getting fully awakened. It was getting out of pain and then um, the romantic um, soft tones of uh, leaping into the boundless and making it your home, as Chong Tzu said as a goal for me, which I haven't yet done, but that's fine. Uh, <clears throat> you know, hitting the jackpot and the idea that awakening is a one-shot um, deal is very common among uh, particularly Western students of Advaita Vedanta teachers. There's some notion that uh, awaken, awakening or enlightenment is a one-shot deal. You get it, you're done. Absolutely not. In Buddhism, there are four stages of awakening. The final is called complete and perfect. Complete, perfect, final awakening. You know, it seems to me um, one can leave the octave without omnipotence. Omnipotence means a full city, a complement of full cities, like Nityananda, right? I mean, look at Nityananda. It looked to me like he was doing all sorts of things. Um... It looked to me like he had no limit to his potence, meaning his capacity to do magically. That's, um, and Gautama too, no doubt. Gautama had no, no, there was no cities denied from Gautama. All the cities were available. He had mastered all them. He didn't master them. <clears throat> he had logoic omnipotence. <laughs> That's all. 
He didn't do it as a training technique. He didn't do techniques to develop the list of 25 cities or something. He was completed. And with the completed state is complete mastery of seven dimensions. And with that is what we call omnipotence, as well as omniscience, as well as omnipresence, the capacity to manifest body-mind anywhere throughout the whole octave. Uh, Those are guys who are finished. And yet, it's also possible, it seems to me, that beings can finish the octave without that. Meaning, guys, you know, there there are two categories. And and it may be... um, it's interesting. Uh, Ra said that those who've had contact with intelligent infinity may or may not show signs. Signs are akin to cities, magical powers or abilities and functions. <clears throat> I'm sure there are beings that leave the octave without omnipotence. On the other hand, um, the sign of somebody who's really free of the octave is omnipotence. So you can get out of the octave without full complement of cities. That in Taoism may be called the Tao of the sage, because there was a distinction in chapter 6 of Zhongzi, the Tao of a sage versus the talent of a sage. The talent of a sage is the functional capacities, is functional, the functional capacities of the sage. The Tao of the sage is, is realization. And I think <clears throat> most of the entities that leave the octave, I mean, there's a difference between it's it's very you know all speculative really. <laughs> uh, great masters here, um, are they beyond higher self? I I don't know. <laughs> Some of them that we call great masters here are probably at the level of higher self. Some of them are probably beyond. But we can't differentiate <laughs> because it's way beyond our our perception. Really, we're not finished with the octave, so we can't say who's finished with the octave. But uh, uh, that a, a, an entity doesn't have absolute full, ma- full control of all cities, full complement of cities available, magical powers, capacities, doesn't mean that they're not, they're not qualified to finish the octave, it seems to me. Uh, just in the same way that one can have the Tao of a sage without the talent of a sage. I think it's that's exactly what's being spoken of in that passage from chapter 6 of Zhongzi. Super esoteric, some of this stuff. That, that I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm right. <laughs> and if I'm right, <clears throat> it follows the principle that a, a profoundly esoteric statements are um, appear commonly in great teachers' teaching. Like uh, Nisargadot talking about source of your beingness. Not the source of self, and not the source of being. Now maybe that's a translator, who, who you know, found the right word. But uh, or uh, there are all sorts of extremely profound statements that we casually pass over in reading or thinking because we're just not ready. We don't see uh, that that's a manhole cover, baby. <laughs> Take it off and you'll see, whoa, that goes way down, down, down to core truths or up, up, up to sat and tat. Uh, that common, that does happen with great teachings <laughs> like this. Like Nisargadat, you'll see great things and Gautama and uh, Gautama and others. So anyway, uh, 
he, um, after saying that, you know, I'd feel a lot better about my chances to win the lottery and get self-realization if you tell me how many have got it from you. Uh, that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> uh, but David Godman says, earnestness was one of the key words in his teaching. He thought that it was good to have a strong desire for self and to have all of one's faculties turn towards it whenever possible. This strong focus on the truth was what he termed earnestness. This is critical, actually, sincerity. I can't remember exactly what Maharaj said in reply, except that I know he didn't divulge any numbers of those who realized or awakened with him. He didn't seem to think that it was any of mine or anyone else's business to know such information. Maybe there were so few, it would have been bad for your earnestness to be told. Uh, David Godman concludes, uh, Harriet says. Uh, and David says, well, that's a possibility because I don't think there were many. Commonly, they're not. Nichinanda had no successor. Harriet says, did you ever find out directly or indirectly? David says, not that day. However, I bided my time and waited for an opportunity to raise the question again. One morning, Maharaj seemed to be more than usually frustrated about our collective inability to grasp what he was talking about. And... It goes, why do I waste my time with you people? He exclaimed. Why does no one ever understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I know where he's coming from. I took, the, I took my chance, David said. In all the years that you've been teaching, how many people have truly understand and experienced your teachings? Hmm. He was quiet for a moment, and then he said, one, Maurice Friedman. He didn't elaborate, and I didn't follow it up. And Maurice Friedman, again, was a Westerner who um, was a very solid person and uh, spoke Marathi. And the final paragraph of this page is where we'll end for today. David says, I mentioned earlier that at the, conclu at the conclusion of his morning puja, he put kumkum on the forehead of all the pictures in his room of the people he knew were enlightened. There were two big pictures of Maurice there, Maurice Friedman, and both of them were daily given the kumkum treatment. Maurice, Maharaj clearly had great respect for Maurice I remember on one of my early visits querying Maharaj about some statement of his that had been recorded in I Am That, Tatvamasi, the book, Maurice written or compiled by Maurice Friedman. I think it was about fulfilling desires. And that... Um, I, let me just see if that statement goes on. Uh, yes, uh, it goes on to the next page. I have to read this. Maharaj initially didn't seem to agree with the remarks that had been attributed to him in the book called I Am That from Maurice Friedman. But then he added, the words must be true because Maurice wrote them. <laughs> Maurice was a Yanni, and the Yanni's words are always the words of truth. This is a very interesting perspective. So, so there you have a Westerner who got it. Was he absolutely finished with the octave? Um, I don't know, but I don't think it's the same. Uh, because there are levels of awakening, or stages of awakening. And he goes on, I've met several people who knew Maurice, and all of them have extraordinary stories to tell about him. He visited Swami Ramdas in the 1930s, and Ramdas apparently told him that this would be his final birth. That comment was recorded in talks with Sri Ramana Maharshi in the late 1930s, decades before he had his meetings with Maharaj, meaning Maurice Friedman's meeting. He was at various stages of his life a follower of Ramana Maharshi, Gandhi, and Krishnamurti. So this Maurice Friedman was a very well, um, very sincere and, and achieved in some sense. 
in the final the final paragraph for today. While he was a Gandhian with Gandhi, he went to work for the Raja of a small principality, the king, and somehow persuaded him to abdicate and hand over all his authority to people he had formerly ruled as an absolute monarch. His whole life is full of astonishing incidents such as this, or these that are virtually unknown. I've been told by someone who used to be a senior Indian official, government official, in the 1960s that it was Friedman, Maurice Friedman, who persuaded the then India Prime Minister Nehru to allow the Dalai Lama and other exiled Tibetans to stay in India. Friedman apparently pestered him continuously for months until finally he gave his consent, Nehru. None of these activities were ever publicly acknowledged because Friedman disliked publicity of any kind and always tried to do his work anonymously. There you go. And so that's the case. Um, Some of the greatest beings or some great beings or many great, many of the great beings who've been in this world have remained fully anonymous or nearly totally anonymous like Maurice Friedman. And so he did some great work there for sure. So um, that'll be it for today. And that's an introduction to Nisargadat and this write-up uh, from David Godman, who, um, whose perspective is quite interesting and important. So I will pick this up next time on page two of Remembering Nisargadat Maharaj and lots of food for thought. So I hope this has been helpful and I hope you're well. Uh, please take good care of yourselves. See you next time and good night.